Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicked, a cricket podcast where we entertain, educate, pontificate, and occasionally take a trip down memory lane. I'm your host, Benny, and this week, me and fellow co-host, Mike, we're joined by author Trinanjan Chakraborty, who authored the book, The Forgotten Sons, Untold Stories of Indian Cricket. We had a fascinating conversation where we talked about some of the lesser-known history makers of Indian cricket players whose exploits and contributions have been forgotten or barely remembered these days. Along the way, we explore what it means to revisit history and reflect on the legacies left behind. Stay tuned for all that and more right after this brief message. So guys, I want to tell you about another podcast you might want to give a try if you want to break from all the cricket talk. Three Men and a Microphone is probably the best podcast you've not listened to. It is hosted by three men in their 40s, navigating through life and everything that is thrown at them. They share funny stories, life events, and all that they get up to every week, all in 45 minutes each episode. Always funny, sometimes serious, these episodes are a great way to start your week. They're essentially like radio shows you used to love, fast-paced and fresh, with a hint of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. Check out Three Men and a Microphone, out every Monday on all major podcast platforms. So we are very happy to have the author of the book, The Forgotten Sons, Untold Stories of Indian Cricket, uh, Trinanjan Chakraborty, or TC, as he uh, it's as it is easier to call him. Uh, TC, we are so glad that you agreed to come on our podcast. Welcome to The Last Wicket. Uh, thank you so much, Benny. Man. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege, and I'm sure it's going to be a great time that we're going to have the next whatever time that we spend in talking our favorite game, cricket. Absolutely. And you know, one of the reasons wh- why we really wanted to talk with you is 
um, this book, you know, we are talking about players from history, players from Indian cricket history. And, you know, we live in an era where thanks to social media, it feels like memory is very short, right? It's almost like if you if you follow cricket on social media, you would think there did not exist any cricket before MS Dhoni and Sachin Tendulkar. And, and it, it's it fair, is fair because, you know, memory is short, but um, we, and when we talk about cricket history, then, you know, the bigger names stand out, right? Sunil Gavaskar, Ravi Shastri, Kapil Dev, and which is why I like the premise of your book, because you focused on people that you say that we don't talk enough about. And so you picked, uh, you know, select group of lesser known faces from Indian cricket history, men who made vital contributions, uh, but, you know, they've essentially been forgotten since then. So I was just curious, why did you choose to focus your effort on this? Like, why was this, why did you choose this as your pet project? Uh, okay, I, I'm glad you asked such questions up front uh, because I ask, do get asked that a lot. So uh, if you would read the preface or the introduction to my book, I mentioned I had this cricket crazy uncle, my mother's elder brother. So uh, he was, he grew up in the 1950s, 60s India when there was no television. Uh, so all your consumption was cricket was around that precious transistor radio and obviously uh, newspaper. But, and he used to love about those memories. And uh, I mean, he was quite old by the time. So I think around 1990s when he got retired from his job. So he had a lot of leisure time and not everyone was very keen to, <laughs> to spend time with him, hearing him, his uh, you know, uh, re reminiscences and recollections of those matches gone long by. I was what, about 10, 11 then, so I was an easy picking. Uh, so he would uh, sit me down and say, you know, in 1952, England had come, and in 1958, uh, Richie Benno's Australia had come. So initially, I was, I mean, obviously, you can understand, the 10, 11 year old kid would rather go out and play with his friends than listen to these stories. But over time, uh, and I think this is something unique about the generation who did not, at least whose first introduction to cricket was not through TV, because they had to visualize those scenes that they read or heard on radio through, I mean, through their own imagination. So when he was narrating it to me, I don't know how exact it was, but the picture it presented on that 10, 11 year old kid was very impressionable. And over the years, those names have stayed with me. The Tufatkar here, uh, Ramchand there. So those names had stayed with me and always at there, the back of my mind. And at some point, I don't know. And maybe I think the point that you are making that nowadays uh, we feel like cricket has only started probably in the, I mean, whatever. The, uh, I think even Tendulkar nowadays feels a little ancient. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I remember I was at Eden for the pink ball test between India and uh, Bangladesh. So later on uh, that night when I was at home and watching the highlights or something. So Sunil Gavaskar had a sort of an angry retort. I think Kohli had made a statement that, you know, Dada's team had taught us to play courageously and bravely, etc. So Gavaskar was a little less impressed and he said that um, I, I hope the Indian captain knows that Indian cricket did not start in 2001. Uh, and you know the funny thing and uh, is that 
and I digress a little with your kind permission, is that this is not today's phenomenon. Uh, many years back, I think uh, there was a felis, uh, there was some some kind of gathering of ex Indian cricketers, and maybe I think if I'm not wrong, it was probably a 25 year old. Uh, 25th celebration of the twin triumphs of 1971, uh, where when India won Test series in West Indies in England. So there was a 25-year celebration of that happening. Probably I, I may be wrong there. So many former Indian cricketers were invited, and obviously the signature of all eyes was the 71 team. So Ajit Wadikar sir and those players. So Ramchand, Mr. Ramchand was also there. And he apparently made this remark that, you know, Indian cricket did not start in 1971. Right. We were also there. So when I heard Gavaskar this remark, I realized that, you know, this is a generational thing. I mean, obviously, the every generation has its heroes. And, and I think with social media, of course, I think the current or recent events have become much more prominent. So all this mixed together somewhere was there at the back of my mind that, you know, maybe the new generation needs to be told about some of these names. I mean, they, because what I feel is that today we probably measure too much things on runs and wickets and aggregates. But the problem is you have to understand that there was a time when probably in three years, one cricket series happened. And you actually sometimes were forced to pull out of a tour because maybe you're working in the army and you're not given for leave or you had family business to attend and you could not make the tour. So in those days, the board actually would ask the player that, are you willing to do something like that? Today, you, I mean, a cricketer, if given a chance, and they would not think twice to ignore anything. And, and it's good that the game has grown and they have the kind of professional security, but it was not there back then. So when we measure in aggregates, we do a filtering where a lot of these names miss out, which, which to me wasn't entirely fair. So that you may say is the, I mean, I, I probably took a little more time than I should have, but that was essentially the genesis of my book. So those names that had stayed with me at the back of my mind from my childhood and the fact that increasingly even recent names are becoming, uh, you know, uh, I, mean, and I, I mean, a very young person uh, had recently told me that, why do you, why do you people so go so gaga over Kapil? And there are so many players today. Why? What is? It? And I don't blame him because he is, I think, probably he's born in the mid to late 90s. So I don't blame him for having that reaction. So I felt that somewhere, if uh, it's also the onus on us, uh, we are all lovers of the game. So somewhere the onus is also on us to probably, if we can keep some uh, archive uh, in that sense, that some written records and some callback to a bygone era and the names of that era. I think it's it's my way of saying, like I said, that it's my love letter to Indian cricket. No, that's that that's perfect. You know, for all the reasons that you mentioned, that is why we need books like yours. And I know like even on social media, you you do post these old pictures or old accounts that sometimes I read and I'm like, wow, that happened. And there are there are many people like that, you know, like for all that. Yeah, yeah we dunk on social media, you know, YouTube is another one where we see all Absolutely. these archival footage. And it's, and it's so important, right, to maintain that for fans who, it's while it's easy to think or easy to kind of not think about past pioneers in cricket, these are all useful, like educational, historical things that, you know, fans were interested, they can really 
appreciate the game better, appreciate the evolution of the game better. And that is why, you know, reading about the, the, all the people that you wrote about in this book and each of them have their own fascinating story. And it's a shame that, you know, not many people know about it, but that is why, you know, the motivation for your book that, that was so important because now that is one step towards knowing them better. So no, great job on that. All right, so let's talk about uh, the first superstar of Indian cricket, uh, Palvankar Balu, um, who played in the 1890s and then the first decade of 1900s. Uh, he's a fascinating personality because he's he was a Dalit cricketer, a left-arm spinner, and I didn't know this until <laughs> until we read your book that he was the inspiration behind the character of Kachra in, in the Oscar-nominated movie Lagan. And notably, he was considered the best spinner in the world at the time. So considering the backdrop of his, um, uh, you know, of his background and then the caste divide uh, around that time, the, all the political disturbance, what do you think his importance is uh, to the to Indian cricket as well as the nationalist movement at the time? Uh, first, let me say that the Lagan team have never officially acknowledged that he was anyway behind the influence, but I think the similarity is too stark to ignore. So that's why I had mentioned it. Uh, one, one, uh, before I sort of get into the core of the uh, idea that you just narrated, let me just mention that uh, when I had completed the first draft of my book, Palwankar Balu did not feature it. I had actually started the journey from India's first test. So it started with Misar and Amar Singh. But uh, I, I knew about Balu. Uh, I had, uh, but I, no, I, I was focusing only on the test journey. I was not really looking at before that. But uh, I was going through a lot of old anecdotes, accounts, uh, books, etc. And at some point, when I uh, spent some more time on Balu as a character, uh, I felt that it would be, given the theme of my book and the name, at, and that is the point when I had finalized on the name, I felt that it would be a grave injustice if, if I call my book Forgotten Sons of Indian Cricket and I try to do not include this man, then it would be a, I would be doing a grave injustice because I don't think there is anybody with that amount of momentous impact in those times who has been as forgotten as Bali was. You asked about his importance to cricket, Indian cricket. The first thing is that I think we have tremendously devalued this person. Uh, just the sheer environment of in which he grew up. I mean, uh, it's not a comfortable topic to discuss even today in India. Casteism is something that we often tend to brush under the carpet. And we see, uh, especially in the, may not be so much in the large cities and metros, but as we go away into the hinterlands, you see even now hate crimes happening linked to caste. In that backdrop, almost 130 years, 120 years ago, this man was breaking down for barriers in unimaginable. So the, for him to be selected to the Hindu Jinkana team itself was a huge barrier broken down, just that sheer act, because that was an endorsement of talent. Talent, which we say is the, you know, talent is the biggest equalizer. So here was this guy born into a very poor family at the lowest end of the, I mean, whatever the caste hierarchy, whatever you call it. 
and there was considerable resistance that no, he should not be selected. But finally, the, the, they had to relent. And the reason they had to relent was that because he was so good. So at every step of his career, he was breaking down barriers. Uh, I was seeing this so Epic Channel. I don't know if you heard of Epic Channel has had this. They have created a series on Indian cricket. So Nasiruddin Shah, they use Nasiruddin Shah as a narrator. So they had done a dramatization of the character, so Balu's character. And to see even a dramatization was is quite tough. It's, you see those things like he has taken a wicket, but he cannot celebrate with his teammates because he's an untouched. They will, they are giving the ball to him by sort of, I mean, rolling it on the ground. When there is a luncheon interval, they are going into the canteen or cafeteria and eating. He is sitting outside, eating his food, and he has to wash it himself because even the club attendant is of a higher order than him in the hierarchy. Despite that, to maintain the motivation, the drive, the hunger to succeed, I mean, I really take my hats off to this guy, and I think he should be celebrated a lot, lot more. And every step, like I said, in 1906 or seven is when his teammates finally, they realize that this man is driving our success. In that quadrangular or triangular contest, the Hindus team was always the weaker. I mean, the Europeans are obviously good at cricket. And over time, the Parsis also became quite formidable. Uh, in fact, the first great Indian bowler was from the Parsi community, Emi Pauri, known for his space. But... Balu was the equalizer for the Hindu team, and it is only thanks to him that they started beating not just the Parsis but even the Hindus. So, through his game, he was breaking down social barriers. And for that and that alone, I think he is an absolute champion. But we have not really remembered the game in India, has not really remembered. You don't see even a I mean, an age level or a provincial tournament named after him. And I, 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 I've talked with many people in the, especially in the cricket Twitter community, and I'm glad that there are quite a few who share this view that, that Balu should be honored a lot more. And it's, it's ironic in a way that India's premier, or I mean, the India's highest first class tournament is named on a great cricketer, legendary batsman, but who had almost no link with Indian cricket per se. He played all his cricket in England and more importantly, he also identified himself with the English identity. So at the other end of the spectrum, you have Balu, who, who is really the idea of India and it's not just his cricket. Post his playing career, he also had an important political career. You know, that's that, that, that really is fascinating because he, he seems to be, he seems to have been such a pioneer you know, a path breaker. And it also seems from your book that it was also the first instance where there seems to be this symbiotic relation be, relationship between cricketers and politicians or, you know, people involved in the nationalist movement. Because now we talk about the link of cricket with, you know, politics and celebrity culture. But that was, that seemed to be the first instance. And it almost seemed to be that they were serving each other. And it seemed like, especially with, you know, all these politicians who would kind of either be in some sort of functions or felicitations for him, they were trying to feed off his, you know, name. 
and for Paul Van Kerbalo, just by his association, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like by his association with them, he was setting, he, he was clearing the way for others like him to kind of make their way and to be more accepted among, you know, their teammates. Uh, it's, a, it's a good angle you bring in, Benny, because uh, of that, uh, maybe the leaders trying to feed up him. Uh, honestly, 100 years later, it's difficult to uh, give a definitive answer. But I think one, in, one interesting analogy I find is, uh, I, I don't know how, how much you have to follow our idea of Indian football, but uh, in 1911, in Calcutta, Mohan Bagan team had defeated uh, a British team to win the Sheep, the local Sheep tournament. So that was the first time in a major trophy final, an Indian team, a native team, as they called it, had defeated an English team. And it became a... I mean, subsequently, it became a huge, and this was a very tumultuous time of the, I mean, the nationalistic sentiment was on the upswing. So that one sporting achievement became a burning sort of symbol of, you know, India's uh, desire for independence. In many ways, Palwankar Balu, whether willingly or unwillingly, became the postal boy for the nationalistic movement. The fact that he was coming from a very low social hierarchy, I think it added, added uh, to the appeal of values. So let's talk about a forgotten kernel of Indian cricket. Uh, you know, I've heard of CK Naidu, and I'm sure everyone's heard of Dilip Bengsarkar, um, but I'm only vaguely familiar with Hemachandra Adhikari, and he seems to be, he seems to have been a decent cricketer with a strong army background, uh, and probably his biggest contribution to Indian cricket came after his playing days as manager, and then later coach of the national side in the seventies. And a lot of the former cricketers they credit him for instilling professionalism and implementing training regimens, uh, which was unheard of for that generation. Do you feel that this was a turning point for Indian cricket, or was that you know? just more of a flash in the pan, you know, during that time? Uh, I think uh, once, I mean, before I get into his book, I mean, his coaching or mentoring days, I think one observation I had about his playing days is that he, uh, Adhikari was someone who does not come across as probably the most naturally gifted cricketer, if you look at his uh, career, but he does come across as someone who made the most of his abilities to leverage the maximum of the talent that he had. And I think the classic example of this is his, uh, I think the only test match he captained in, which was the last test of the West Indies series in 1959. Uh, uh, probably the worst series India ever had at home. They had uh, three captains in the before him in the same series. So, Gulam uh, Ahmed had retired after two disastrous results. Umrigar Played in one test and he had disagreements with selectors. He had walked off. Binu Wankar laid in one test and then he was injured, etc. And India were, India were being terrorized by Holland Gilchrist. So it was, it was a, it was one of the lowest phases of Indian cricket. And this man, he was almost close to forty. He thought his playing days were over. He had been ignored for that series. So he was on, he was actually manning India's borders with China <laughs> when he gets the call that you know. Your country needs you in another battlefield. And for him to come take up, he put on a good batting display, picked up a few wickets, and he, and he actually managed to draw that test match, which not many thought feasible 
at that point of time. That shows that 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 is why I made the point that he's probably not someone who uh, was the most gifted or most naturally talented, but someone whose army background also probably helped that who brought in a lot of discipline and dedication to the work he did. And now leading on to his, what was probably his most significant contribution in his post playing days. Uh, I think in the 1950s and 60s, it's not that India did not have some good fielders. Definitely had, I think in the 50s, Ramson was reputed as a very good fielder. You've all heard about Patavi's fielding. Lucy Sukhi was another excellent But as a general ethic, I don't think, and I, I don't think it's not just for India. I don't think Phil focus on fielding, focus on physical drills, etc., was not really something that was part of the game at that point. And in that sense, I think uh, definitely this was uh, Kanil Adhikari's, one of his biggest legacies is that the kind of work ethic he managed to instill, if not in everyone, but in a lot of cricketers that he interacted with. And it was not just on-field brief. I think he introduced things like, uh, you know, night curfews, you know, that, I mean, sort of that cut-off hour that you need to. So all that coming from his army days, and in fact, there are some funny anecdotes how Farooq engineer used to count out ways of evading Adhikari's night curfews, etc. So you put the pillows and cover it with a bed sheet to appear like you were sleeping in his room. This, I think, definitely had a long-term impact. Because if you see the names of, I think, the early 1980s, and especially India had a good time in one-day cricket, winning the World Cup, winning the uh, World Series cricket in uh, Australia in 1985, winning the uh, inaugural Asia Cup in Sharjah. And again, not to draw a direct correlation, but I think a lot of uh, focus that he had put in the formative years of this these players when they were a lot younger. So in the late 70s, he used to be the coach at the uh, national camp where he, I think, I think Kirmani, Kapildev, many of them, Kiran More, I think, has been one who was, he was of a later generation, but he was one who was very effusive in Adhikari's uh, praise. And not only physical fitness, he even taught me how to tie, how to wear my tie, how to use forks and knives, etc. So I think he brought in a sense of, uh, what should I say, um, that it is not just what you go out and do in the field. The concept of preparation, that you need to prepare for the game beforehand. Preparation does not mean just having a net in the morning. Even in whether it's off-season, whether it's a camp, you have to work on your fitness, you have to work on your fielding, you have to work on your manners in the ticket. I think in the late 60s, he had accompanied a schoolboys team where I think Mohinder and Surinder Amanath were there. So even I think Amanath also had recalled that he would teach us the, that how to, so he used to meet some of the English royalty and the lords, etc. So how to meet them, how to greet them. So I think he definitely brought in a sense of professionalism. Uh, I would not call that it was just a one and done. I think there was definitely a legacy of that rem which remained and which made the, I think, India's transit. I think for the first few years, India was quite hopeless in one-day cricket. They did not play a lot of one-day cricket. I think the first ODI in India was probably in 1981 or 80. Before that, India did not even play a, a one international. But then the transition which they made, I, I think that that 
that hard work that Adhikari has put in somewhere. It, I'm not saying it's the key factor, but I'm, I'm quite sure that also made a contribution. You're right. It definitely took some time because I remember in the 90s, when I started watching um, Indian, uh, when I started following Indian cricket, um, I always say like, you know, whenever India was fielding, and the opposition batsman hit a ball to the boundary, it always felt like the fielders would escort the ball to the boundary ropes. Absolutely. And Absolutely. <laughs> they wouldn't dive, they wouldn't run fast. It's like, oh, it's you know gone past me. I might as well just go and pick it up from the rope. But it, it, it was gradual. It was we still gradual. had good fielders during that time. You know, uh, uh, Ajay Jadeja, Robin Singh, Azruddin. And now it's finally crystallized to the era of Virat Kohli, where I think um, Colonel Adhikari would be very proud of Virat Kohli's, you know, uh, the, the training regimen and the expectations that he puts on the, you know, the rest of the players in turn. So it it, it took a while, but uh, you're you're right. He did. It seems to he seems to have left a legacy that took some time to crystallize, but I think it's now we see the effects of it, the, like the long-term effects of it in Indian cricket. You know, one other thing I, for which I respect him a lot, he was there for the 71 uh, tour when in England, he was the tour manager in India, one of the best cities in England for the first. He was also there for the 74 tour, which is probably, I think, the worst tour Indian cricket team has ever encountered on and off the field. And in fact, Rajit Vadikar's, I think his career came to an end after that tour. But after that, that kind of a tour often leaves that kind of casualty. But it shows the metal of the man that he, I mean, he refused to go away. He, he bounced back from that kind of a low. He worked again. I mean, he, I, I think he had a few more tours. And then he is all the work that he put in in the late 70s as the, uh, as the national coaching camp head, training head. I think it also shows you that he was a man who, I mean, you know, you say a, a real strong character, you know, a tough nut guy. He was really a tough guy. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, to bring with Virat Kohli, but I think, yeah, there is one commonality. It appears that both of them would not accept anything less than 100% from their, uh, whatever, their, their students or their teammates. They would want uh, probably 110 or 20%. Right. Um, so moving on to one of the biggest names in Bengal cricket before Saurabh Ganguly, Pankaj Roy was identified as a replacement for Vijay Merchant, and he scored a ton in India's uh, maiden win in England. Um, but I think his biggest claim to fame uh, is the world record partnership of 413 with Vinu Manka in 1955. And you say that uh, Roy deserves to be remembered for a lot more than just that opening partnership. Um, what do you think was the most impressive thing about him and his career? Uh, you know, growing up in California and before sort of Gandhi uh, sort of made a break, I think the dominant sensation that we, or the sentiment that there were two, two things, there were two views that you hear. One was that uh, Bengali cricketers for Bengal were hard done by several Names that you know, they're never given a fair chance, either they never got to play with the national side, or even if they got a chance, they were uh, only given a couple of test matches here and there. The other view that you had was that, you know, cricket uh, is something that Bengalis particularly cannot do. They, they are better to stick with football. 
and that's where Pankaj Roy's name would come up. And the, the, the other than his world record partnership, the other thing that would often be used to, uh, I mean, or, or an association with Pankaj Roy would be that uh, his struggles in England, uh, especially his struggles against Freddie Truman, and uh, it would be often be cited that you know. I mean, see, he was around for a long time, but outside India, could not play that well. Look, I mean, got, got out for duck like five, six times to Truman in England. So it it fascinated me that on one hand, so you, it's like a such a contrast. On one hand, you had a man who held a world record opening partnership for uh, I think half a century or something. On the other hand, the same guy you see that he is associated with. Uh, I mean, low schools in England and struggles in Scotland. So it always fascinated me. That's why I think I was probably the one chapter or one cricketer uh, writing about whom I was most emotionally interested was Pankaj because this thing was always there in my mind. What, how to sort of marry this strange dichotomy? So uh, I think we, that's where, you know, reading numbers become so in isolation that okay, he averages whatever this and that, and you know, did not had a very average 13 in England. It becomes dangerous or selective data. You have to see the time uh, before Sunil Gavaskar, he was the one Indian opener who had the longest tenure. Throughout the 1950s, he, he made his debut in that just when Martin was exiting, so he made his debut in that series. And over the next almost 10 years, he was largely India's one opening player who was more or less always there. And for simply for this, for doing what was a very difficult job at that time, if, if think of it, even today we find Indian players, I mean, in the recent England series, we have seen that Indian players have an extra whenever the ball has moved. Uh, not just in England, Indian players, in English batsmen have struggled. They have, they have been dismissed for like one and a half season or something. Go back to 1950s for a player from the subcontinent uh, going there, opening the batting. I know they played a lot of tour games, but in a, in a lot of the tour games, you also played very ordinary bowling. And then go into the test match and face someone like a Freddie Truman with all his pace and his fiery rage and, and his antiques. Truman was, I think, I think Gulu, Gulu is here. I, I enjoy his writing a lot. So he called, I think he had caught the, he was a, he was, Truman was like an ogre to Indian batsman. So he would, he would, uh, he would abuse, he would make all kinds of gestures, like uh, his things and would terrorize. And from the series, Truman debuted against Indian 52 till the end of the 60s. I, I, I did some number crunching and the average for openers, touring openers, visiting openers in that space from 50 to 59 was 26. Even the great Hanif Mohammed during Pakistan's tour averaged 22. So it was not easy. It was not easy. And I think this is where what we need to acknowledge that Pankaj Roy was doing a very difficult job. Also, India did not have the kind of bowlers. Even if you play at nets or in domestic cricket, you get to prepare. Today, Indian batsmen at the nets, they are lucky to 
have 140-150 speed bowlers or skillful swing bowlers like Sivoneshwar, for example. In that, in that era, it was a balanced phase for Indian pace bowling. There was only Ratu Patkar, who was any good in terms of pace and swing. The others were all at pace, you know, gentle military medium or something like that. So from there to go to that kind of a, an environment and uh, perform, I, I, I know, I mean, even someone might say that average for openers is 26 and this guy still average, but yeah, he had his struggles. The trauma that Truman inflicted in 52, I think he never overcame it uh, when playing in England. In 59, despite his prior experience and despite his I mean, having played quite well in West Indies against Holland, with his economy against struggle. But before passing a judgment like that, we need to acknowledge, and that is why I said that he needs to be remembered for a lot more than just that uh, world record partnership. And one of his innings, which is not in international cricket, but which is talked about a lot by those who have seen it. I, I, I did a thread on Twitter on his birthday, and I remember Gulu sir, he shared some uh, old anecdotes of Abbas Ali Beg. So this was a match between Ranji Trophy quarterfinal between Bengal and Hyderabad. I've written about it in the book. So Gilchrist, so that season, there were four West Indian fast bowlers who were playing for four domestic teams. So Gilchrist was playing for Hyderabad. And he was, I think he apparently swore to his teammates that, so Bengal also had a West Indian pacer, uh, Lester King, I think. So he had generously used bouncers and beamers at Hyderabad. That's it. So Gilchrist had apparently vowed to his uh, teammates that I'm going to kill a few Bengal batsmen. So against that kind of thing. Uh, and remember, this is an era where there is no restriction on uh, bouncers. And given Gilchrist's reputation, I doubt any Indian umpire would have dared to stop him. Although, although actually, I think the umpires did step in and they prevented him from at least bowling those bodyline bumpers, etc. Uh, but he was still a ferocious character and a bowler. Pankaj Roy, and this is after, I mean, he was already, his India career was over. He made two fantastic hundreds. Gulusa shared this anecdote that Abbas Ali Beg, who was, I think, leading Hyderabad, he spoke very highly of the innings because he was opposing fielding captain. He said that those were as good couple of innings, hundreds that I've ever seen in my career. Something to that effect. So this disproves the, the stigma that is associated with Pankaj Roy saying that uh, you know he could not play basketball. Yeah, I think, I think that goes on to show, um, I, I feel like that this happens even today where people just look at, you know, stats and just say, oh, that opener averages 30 and that's just terrible. And, and there's always context to these things and understanding that context is, is key to, you know, decoding uh, players that you may not have seen. And, and I think this is definitely a fantastic example. And I think the fact that you said, you know, that that uh, the, the series where the, he had the 400 partnership, those were against a, not a very competitive team on probably flat pitches. I, I don't know any partnership in test cricket which goes on for 400 or even 300 runs and it's not a, not a flat pitch. So, you know, those conditions have to all come together. Um, and I think there's always context around that. Um, but having said that, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, Rusi Surti, um, known as uh, poor man's Gary Sobers. Um, he was an interesting cricketer because he was the only one at the time to have featured in Shield cricket. 
um, known to be very chirpy with the opposition. Um, and one of the last Parsi male cricketers in the Indian side. Um, the only one, uh, only other one I can think of is, of course, the great Farooq engineer. And um, so could you talk a little bit about his influence broadly on um, uh, and, and the influence of the Par Parsi influence in Indian cricket? I think, uh, uh, in fact, Rusi Sufi is still, I think, the only Indian uh, cricketer, certainly the only Indian test cricketer who played in the Australian sheet. I don't think. Definitely no other test cricketer has uh, appeared in the Shields. That's an honor that stays with me. And he was the first Queensland player to take a Shield hat. No one from Queensland had taken a Shield hat trick before he did this. Going back to the Parsi thing, I think the, uh, I think if we think of three sports in India, three team sports, cricket, football, and hockey, it's interesting that there are three communities who have a very similar relationship relationship with this sport. So I think what Bengalis as a community were to football and what, what Anglo-Indian community was to hockey, uh, especially for the independence, I think Parsis played a similar role in incubating cricket for from an Indian context. And the interesting thing is that they did it much before uh, any of the other two communities. So I think the first Parsi cricket club, Orient cricket club, I think was called I think it came up around 1850 or something. So even before the 1850 mutiny, so more than 150 years ago, this community uh, started playing the white men's game, as they called it. And I think so. When we see any 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 game, any sport, any cultural phenomena, there's always a journey, is what I feel. And where we have reached today is only because those pioneers, but somehow, unlike the other two sports and the other two communities, I think somewhere the influence of the Parsi community on cricket in India has not been explored that much. Maybe because it was a more older phenomenon, maybe that is the reason. Maybe, like you rightly said, that I think after Farooq engineer, I think he last played for India in the mid-70s. After that, we they have not had any male cricketer representing the senior Indian the only a Diana Edelchi playing for the women's team, and even that has been almost 30 years now. So, uh, probably with the dwindling Parsi population and their national, their dwindling involvement in cricket, uh, it has somehow been another forgotten chapter. But the role of the Parsis in shaping Indian cricket is very, very vital. They, uh, the first tours by from India, the first cricket tours to England were by Parsi. Pioneers in 1886, the first tour went, which was a part city. Uh, I mean, it was not a representative team. The first representative Indian team went only in 1911. But the first in team from India to go and play cricket in uh, England was from that community. They again went in 1888, two years later. They defeated, there was an English team led by Lord Hawk, which had a few. I think test cricketers also who came to India in 1893. So the Parsis defeated an English side. That was also a momentous occasion for, a, for an Indian side to defeat an English cricket side from England was a momentous occasion. They gave India uh, probably the first recognizable name of Indian cricket, which is, I, I briefly mentioned, Mehla uh, Shafavi. He was often compared to Fred Scofforth, Australia's demon bowler. He was so, uh, he was a very fast bowler. 
who earned plaudits even on the 1882 thing. I think observers there praised him. And, and surprisingly, at a time when a lot of bowling happened underhand, he bowled up, uh, he bowled a you know, full hand, what we call full hand or a rounder. Uh, so the Parsis' involvement without them, that's why I use the term incubating. They sort of carried Indian cricket through its early years. And it is only looking at them, those Jim Khanna matches, presidency matches between Europeans and Parsis. That is what gradually inspired them. So once they saw the Parsi Jim Khanna, a Hindu Jim Khanna had its cricket team, then the Muslims entered the fray. So they sort of acted as the you know, groundbreaking, uh, the pioneers who uh, the avant-garde who led the others into the game. Even the two to England in 1911, uh, uh, it is often believed that uh, even I, I at one point of time thought that it was uh, Maharaja Patiala who was the chief patron of the tour. Uh, so there is this book by Gulu uh, Uziki, Myth Busting of Indian Cricket. And there it is quite, that tour is quite well covered, that series. And there also, uh, it was the Parsi community. I mean, the, the, the Maharaja, of course, he was the titular captain because that at that time that was the practice. But it was the Parsi community who raised the funds, who sort of did the, took care of all the logistics. And who made that would happen. Uh, so we, and I'm glad that at least we had a few Parsi stars of the game. Obviously, you mentioned Farooq in India. I think he still commands an iconic following, not just in India, but in England as well. There was also Nari Contractor. Unfortunate that his career ended prematurely. And it brings us to Lucy Supti and that uh, nickname, Pohman's Gary Sobers. I, uh, I think it's a bit unfair. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know, if you analyze, and I have done a fair bit of analyzing of his career, he, he played for India for nine years. He made his debut in, in December of 60 when Pakistan And his last test was against Australia in similarly November of 1969. During that period, India played 45 test matches. He featured in only 26 of them. And he never, ever played a full series in India. He was always in two of the five tests, one of the three tests, two of them. He played only three full series in his life, and they all came overseas. One was the disastrous 1962 2 West Indies, and the other were the 222s to Australia and New Zealand, where he actually had his best moments of his career. So it is easy to dismiss someone saying that his batting average was 26 and his bowling average was 46, let's call him two months and so forth. But one needs to understand this, these factors also. He always got I, what I felt was a raw deal. In fact, the 60s stand out. There were several names in Indian cricket, which I think may not just me, I think most agree that who should have played a lot more. I think Nari Contractor, of course, there was an unfortunate chapter, but there was Salim Durani, there was Ram, uh, Ramakant Desai, there was uh, Hanuman Singh. So all these cricketers who should have definitely played a lot more than they did. And I add Sukhi to that list also. In just his second test match, so he started off as an all-rounder, so to speak. He was selected to open the bowling and he batted at eight. In his next test match, he was sent on day one against Pakistan, he was sent to bat at number four. And he made 64. He, it was his second innings in international cricket. He had a 100-plus partnership with Nari England visited after that. So, Pakistan tour was over. That was the last test. England visited the next year. And he was conveniently forgotten. 
England played five test matches. He was conveniently forgotten. And this used, this was largely a recurring feature. What I admire a lot about the guy is that it's very easy to get demotivated when this keeps on happening. Uh, it's very easy to you know feel a sense of bitterness. From whatever I've been able to uh, read about uh, him from uh, whatever his material is available, the, the way his teammates spoke about him, it never comes across that he was uh, ever bitter or you know held any kind of grudge against anyone. Every time he was called, he would put his hand up and he would do the job that was expected. So in that way, I think we should not use, uh, to me that to be called the poor man's Gary Sobers, it sounds very derivative, but I look at it in a different way. Uh, we associate Sir Gary Sobers with a certain romanticism, a certain joy that he brought to the game. I look at Surti exactly in that sense. And I think it's it's a little sad he in, in that New Zealand series where he had such a good time in Australia. He got out on 99. He never managed to get a test 100. So I would have been very happy if he uh, managed to do that. Uh, you mentioned, Mayank, about his being chirpy. I think that was that is an interesting aspect of it. And he apparently had this uh, one catchphrase, Uske Baap Ka Kya Gaya. He used to use it. So in 1969, what was his last series? He actually got under Bill Laurie's skin. <laughs> and in fact, I think Kirsi Mehrmongji, who, who was also who also settled in Australia, he had, I think, written that the reason why uh, Rusi was so easily accepted by in the Queensland dressing room was that he had this same thing which the Australians had admired, that he was a fierce competitor and he... I mean, if someone said something to him, he would not back off. He would actually give back a little bit. And he had this ability to, yeah, and he, he demonstrated by doing it to one of their best, the captain of Australia. He sort of angered him by whatever he was chirping and everything. So it, it was nice. He, I think he could have played for India for a, a little while longer. But I think around that time, Vijay Merchant had come up with his youth policy. So he wanted the, some of the younger players. So Suti realized that probably, and he always had a checkered career. So his name would probably be one of the first on the chopping block. Uh, so he, and I'm, I'm glad that at least he had a great time in Australia and, uh, and he was well-respected and admired by his Queensland teammates. But I, I really love this character a lot and I think, I think he also brought a lot of romanticism and the right kind of attitude that doesn't matter. I mean, getting selected is probably not in my hands, but every time I am selected, I'll do my job. And it reflects in his... Uh, batting position, I think he batted everywhere from opening to 10. Some uh, in West Indies, when, he, when the series started, he was at 8. And I, I think Hall and Stairs and Watson, they're doing all kind of damage. And I think in a couple of matches, he was also sent out to number 3. And he, he probably did not make a lot of runs, but he, he hung around. He made 30s and 40s. And he was always ready to put his hand up. I, th I, think, I think any captain would love to have such a guy. I was ever a captain of any cricket team. That is a name I would always put on the first on the team. So someone who is willing to do whatever is expected from him and who goes about it with the right kind of spirit. I'm always remembered of that Devanand song, as in Devi ka saath nipata chala gaya. Whenever I look at Rishi and I think it, it's just something about um, Parsi cricketers because even growing up, I have heard stories about. 
Farouk engineer and, and how he was the first cricketer to get an endorsement with Brill Cream. And uh, so I've, I've always heard his stories and actually in, in 2016 in the Caribbean, he was there to watch India West Indies and I saw him 10 feet away. And even then it was something about his personality that made you realize, you know, he sort of stood out in the crowd and um, had a deep voice and he would he shouted across the ground to call Ashan Sharma to let, the, let him in. And, obviously Shant heard and uh, let him in but yeah it's it's funny that we've had a handful of Parsi cricketers but they've all been very fascinating characters and, and have had very interesting stories. And I'm glad that when I mean Sukti and Contractor was sort of the end of the Parsi connection in Indian cricket but I'm glad that the end was probably the best to say for the last and uh, uh, in, in, I mean if you see some of the I see on Twitter some of the like the older Englishmen I think they have a great emotional attachment to engineer, but they are like, he's one of our own. He's one of Lancashire. He's uh, not of uh, India. He's of India second. He's of here And I think, I think there's some urban legends that he was a neighbor of George Best, uh, Manchester United player, who was also known for his off-the-field life. So they would sometimes go out and party together. And I can imagine what would be the only imagined person. But interestingly, one thing you talked about endorsements, uh, he was not the first to endorse Brilkrim, by the way. Uh, Ramchand and Vinu Mankar had endorsed it before him as well. But yeah, I think I think combined with his, uh, I think his uh, attitude and his style and the, the sheer, I think he, he comes across such a, you know, a vivacious character, even now, even now so old, even now he comes across as a dynamic and vivacious character. So I can only imagine that he was sort of hero worshipped in the 60s and 70s. So yeah, I think at least the end of Parsi cricket in India, and I, I hope someone, from, I think there was this Parsi guy who was a, a net bowler in, on the England movies, and I hope there is someone from the Parsis who play again, but even if not, then glad that it was the last Parsi cricket to play for India, given the kind of flair he brought to, the, the joy he brought to fans and stuff. You know, TC, if, if we had more time, we could go on and on about not just these cricketers, uh, but, you know, many more. <laughs> many more. I mean, just just some of the players that you have written in your book that we're not going to be able to get to. But Bapu Nadkarni, G.S. Ramchand, B.S. Kunderan, Prober Sen. These are all fascinating people, uh, fascinating players, not just their cricket, because it's easy to just look at numbers, like you mentioned earlier, and kind of dismiss them as like, oh, they're probably average players. But there's so much more than that. Uh, you know, the, the context of the times that they were in, the context of the opposition, the conditions, and they all had their impact, which um, Indian cricket still is, you know, experiencing uh, the effects of their influence even today. And honestly, I, I, I know that there are some players, there are some players in the modern era who don't really care too much about history because they're focused on themselves and they're focused on, you know, their game and their team. But I think they would do well to, to have like a history lesson of, you know, for Indian players, it could be Indian cricket, but for other teams, look at their own history too, because all of these players, they had these people before them who paved the road for them. And it, just from reading your book and just like listening to you talk about these players, it's, it's fascinating, you know, and, and all the impression that I'm getting it is more people should be aware of this. This is incredible. You know, we 
it's easy to dismiss them as, oh, this happened a long, long time ago. Um, but the impact that they've had is, is just amazing and definitely more people need to know. I think there's a term going around social media for people like me. They call us the nostalgia merchants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nostalgia merchants, yes. Well, I, but, I love my nostalgia. So. No, that is important, though. You know, that nostalgia. Like, I was just thinking, uh, someone posted a clip the other day of, uh, I think it was a game when Sachin Tendulkar was smashing the Australian bullets. Oh, this was 1998, uh, Sharjah. And they were talking, oh, this happened like, uh, 25, 20, 23 years ago. And I was thinking, I, I remember watching that game. <laughs> I've been around. Remember not just the game. I think, I think every sentiment, every time, you know, every sensation, I mean, the joy, the agony, the tension, yeah. I think, I think uh, irreplaceable, but yeah, like I was saying that nowadays I sometimes feel Tendulkar is ancient. Right. <laughs> right. No, there are people talking about it. There are people talking about it. Like, oh, this happened such a long time ago. And these are younger fans who probably started watching cricket in the late 2000s. Uh, I mean, the early part of 2010s, you know. So for them, that is like from the history vault. And I'm thinking, how old am I? <laughs> I remember watching that live <laughs> and people are talking about it like something they've never seen before, which is why it's so important, that, you know, the stories that you share and the stories that others like you are sharing on social media, uh, particularly if there's video clips available for us cricket fans to see, uh, that is tremendous. So, so TC, thank you so much for the book. Uh, are you working on anything else? Uh, there are a couple of ideas I am currently doing, you can say the research on. So uh, I've still not narrowed down, but yeah, I hope to be, uh, hopefully in next year, I have my next book. I hope fingers are crossed well if you do let us know because we 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 would love to promote it we would love to hear about what you're working on because uh this is a fascinating book we are gonna we're gonna you know include a link uh for people to look up this book and purchase it it's called the forgotten sons untold stories of indian cricket uh if you're listening to this you have to check it out uh it it really is filled with fascinating stories of some fascinating characters so tc thank you again so much for your time and for sharing the stories thank you thank you benny thank you mayang for reaching out to me uh, i think writing is one thing but getting to talk about it is another way and a lot of people may not like to read but I, that's why i admire the kind of work you are doing i think uh, you probably these stories at least these names can reach out to a lot more right. people that. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. And I, I really enjoyed uh, being on your podcast. And I wish you all, so guys nice. all the best for the fantastic work that you do. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to TC for joining us and sharing those memorable anecdotes and reminding us of the rich history of Indian cricket. So if you enjoyed this conversation, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes, follow us on your social media feeds, and spread the word to your friends. Thank you for listening, and from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.